The Daily Rios, Episode 362, Timeline Tuesday for October 2016. Hey everyone, this is Peter. This is the monthly comic history episode where I take a look at the anniversaries of the month of characters, new titles, iconic issues, events, etc. that are celebrating 10, 25, 50, and sometimes 75 years. These anniversaries are not judged by cover dates, but actual shipping dates of issues as best as my research and resources will allow. Now, as always, I may miss something. If I do, let me know. But my hope is that you'll listen and maybe stop and think, wow, I didn't know that that character had been around for this long. Or maybe a certain entry will jog uh, your memory and you'll go, oh, you know what? I haven't read that in a long time. Let me reread that again. Or maybe you'll even find something on here that you've never read Uh, But maybe it's something that um, you've always wanted to read, and maybe this will give you a little push to seek out that comic or, you know, whether in print or digital or in a trade, and say, you know what, I've never read this, and I'm going to do that now. I'm going to correct that mistake. That's certainly something that's been happening with me as I've been reading fairly iconic issues, Golden Age, Silver Age uh, comic books, and, and finding out that my experience reading them is quite different from hearing other people talk about them. They might miss certain elements or they might mix up certain elements. So, uh, you know, that's been a fun kind of new twist on my comic book reading. Uh, You know, trying to go back and read the first appearance of Kid Flash. Uh, Going back and reading the first appearance of the Justice Society of America as a team or the original Galactus Trilogy, and, uh, you know, truly, truly experiencing it on my own, uh, mixing it in with all of the other trivia knowledge that I know, and going, oh, okay, that's what this story is about. So that's another reason why I kind of like to do these Timeline Tuesdays, because it'll give you, uh, as I said, maybe a little bit of a push to read things that you've been putting off for a while. So why don't we start, and as always, we're going to start with 10 years ago, October 2006. This is certainly topical. Doctor Strange, The Oath. The first issue of a five-issue miniseries was released by Brian K. Vaughn with art by Marcos Martin. And one of the plots of the story centers around the revelation that Wong, Dr. Strange's assistant, uh, has cancer and he has a short time to live. And this is all something that Strange refuses to accept and he believes he can do something about it. So there's an elixir and apparently it can cure all diseases, and the story goes from there, more or less. That's a a really bad synopsis of what the book was about. But it also features Night Nurse, a character from 1970s Marvel that was brought back for a few issues of Bendis' Daredevil, and then Civil War, and then this miniseries to a much larger degree. And it is a character that is featured in all of the Netflix series that Marvel is doing, 
in a little bit of a twist, or maybe she's a mashup of different characters, but uh, Night Nurse is uh, prominent right now within Marvel TV. Also from Marvel 10 years ago, Irredeemable Ant-Man number 1, a series that would be canceled by issue 12. This was by Robert Kirkman and artist Phil Hester, who was probably the most frequent artist on that title. This Ant-Man was Eric O'Grady, and after this series, he was he was in Avengers Initiative, he was a member of Thunderbolts, he was a member of Secret Avengers, and then I believe he died. So I'm not I, I don't think he's around to this day. From DC Comics, we have Action Comics number 844. This was the beginning of the Last Sun storyline, written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, although I don't know how much of an input he actually had in the series. Uh, artwork by Adam Kubert. Now, Richard Donner was would only stick around for maybe five or six issues. Uh, I believe the Last Sun story wrapped up in an annual, and then he also wrote a biz- co-wrote a Bizarro story. Uh, this was the introduction of a character that would be known as Christopher Kent, and it was discovered that he was the son of Zod and Ursa, two of the Phantom Zone villains. And eventually he would go away and then come back as uh, the Kryptonian superhero known as Nightwing. Uh, this was during all of that new Krypton stuff with James Robinson and company. So uh, this was the beginning of, I would say, a better time to read action comics. Um, eventually, well, before this, it was Gail Simone and John Byrne. Kurt Busiek was on the book with Jeff Johns and Pete Woods. And then spinning out of all of this Jeff Johns, Richard Donner stuff, we would eventually get to Jeff Johns and Gary Frank doing a whole bunch of Legion of Superhero stories and Brainiac uh, the Death of Pa Kent, etc. So, um, Action Comics 844, a, a, you know, a fairly semi-important issue uh, for that series. Over at Wildstorm, they were doing their World Storm event, and I did talk about this last time. Uh, it was a complete bust. So, with this month, October of 2006, we have Authority Number One by Grant Morrison and Gene Ha. Barely lasted what two issues, and then it morphed into a series called Authority: The Lost Year. But that came several years after this. There was also Death Blow by Brian Azzarello. Um, probably he was on that book for about nine issues, and Gen Thirteen. And at least the first year of Gen 13, which was probably the one that lasted the longest out of Worldstorm, uh, the first year was written by Gail Simone. Okay, a couple other things from October of 2006. We have Criminal Number 1 by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips coming out of the Icon imprint for Marvel. Now, Ed Brubaker at this time was about two years into his Captain America run, he was just finished up with Gotham Central, and he was starting Daredevil. So his name was pretty prominent by this point. Uh, we also had the wrap-up of the Seven Soldiers event over at DC. This was Grant Morrison's version of the Seven Soldiers, featuring Zatanna and Vigilante and Guardian and um, who else? Frankenstein and the Bulleteer and some Mr. Miracle and some other characters I'm not remembering. Clarion, the Witch Boy, I think. So it was his version of the Seven Soldiers versus the Sheeta. And then there was a character called Oracles, 
who was the primordial superhero, and all of this series would lay the seed for Final Crisis and Future Morrison work. Uh, so fantastic, just a fantastic round robin kind of story. Um, I always I always dug Seven Soldiers. So that wrapped up ten years ago in October. And finally, Ultimate Power, number one of nine, from the Ultimate Universe over at Marvel. This was written, at least the first three issues, by Bendis, and then J. Michael Straczynski took over for three issues, and then Jeff Loeb would take over for three issues. And the premise here was just the Ultimate Universe meets the Supreme Power Universe. And the Supreme Power Universe was an alternate take on the Squadron Supreme, Uh, who had multiple alternate takes on their characters for many years because they were an alternate take on the Justice League of America. It's very, very confusing. Um, But yeah, Ultimate Power number one, 10 years ago, October 2006. Let's jump to 25 years ago, October 1991, and we start with Batman Judge Dredd, Judgment on Gotham. This was the first of four crossovers of those two characters, published by DC and what was known as Fleetway at the time. It was written by John Wagner and Alan Grant, with art by Simon Beasley. Uh, Most likely, this was probably the first Judge Dredd story I ever read. And I think I looked at Simon's artwork and I thought, huh, he's kind of in the school of uh, Bill Sienkiewicz a bit. Um, but, you know, what did I know at the time? I I think, did I read Lobo by this point? Was that out? I'm not certain. But obviously he's not a Bill Sienkiewicz. He's not in the Bill Sienkiewicz school of comics at all. If anything, he's more of the Frank Rosetta um, inspiration. So what did I know, you know, at that time? Anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, This would eventually be followed up with Vendetta in Gotham in 93, Ultimate Riddle in 95, and Die Laughing in 98. And all of those one-shots would be by different creative teams. Um, Apparently this was a thing, you know, you're mixing the preeminent, you know, uh, British character with Batman, and the mashup probably created quite a buzz. I think I sold that issue on eBay for a good chunk of money. So 25 years ago, their first appearance, their first uh, crossover. Um, Okay, then we have Elemental Sex Special, the first of four sex specials. And I know you, I know you read it out there. Um, I did not read it. But uh, in my research, I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. I mean, certainly swimsuit specials were all the rage at this time, weirdly. Uh, And there even was a volume two of the Elementals sex special. And the Elementals was by Bill Willingham. And he took superheroics into all new ways in their series, trying to show them as something more than just superheroes. And then with this sex special, apparently, uh, it was, you know, really pushing the envelope. And pushing the envelope beyond what the series did. Like the series sort of teased certain things. And then this series said, okay, now we're, we're not going to tease. We're going to actually show you what they do on their downtime and in their weird kink habits and et cetera. So Elemental Sex Special, I just thought, I mean, how can you miss that cover with the, I, I don't know if it's Fathom. I, it, I guess it's Fathom. Um, 
but she's, uh, you know, making out with a dolphin. So that's kind of weird. Okay, then from Valiant, we have Harbinger number one by Jim Shooter and David Laffham. This would last 41 issues. It was the third or fourth title released from Valiant at the time. Uh, after Magnus Robot Fighter, Solar Man of Adam, uh, Man of the Atom, and Vintage Magnus Robot Fighter. Uh, I, I guess it was the first new creation for this version of the Valiant universe. I don't know. I wasn't reading Valiant at the time. I wouldn't jump onto Valiant until the Unity crossover, and I didn't stick with it much beyond that. So maybe someone out there, if you know... Um, was Harbinger? I have to. I have to imagine it was. It wasn't really based on anything else. The way Magnus was, and and the way Solar was. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see that the Valiant universe uh, was was even you know it predated Image. Um, I don't know why in my mind I thought the opposite, but you know as far as publishers at this time in the early 90s trying to latch on to this idea of we're going to create a superhero comic book universe that's going to rival Marvel and DC. Well, you had Marvel, you had DC, and you had Valiant. And then you'll get Image, and then I guess you get uh, Malibu and the Ultraverse and, uh, you know, whatever else came out in the early uh, 90s or mid-90s. So Harbinger number one, 25 years ago in October of 1991, also, we had Black Hood from Impact Comics, which was an imprint from DC at the time. This was one of the later titles that they would put out. Black Hood as a character, though, has been around in different forms since 1940. He had some previous volumes with Archie Comics, and this was the third volume uh, that came out in October of 1991. This month, 25 years ago, would also give us Prince Alter Ego number 1, uh, which was by Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan, and cover by Brian Bolin. And yes, this was about the rock star Prince. And this was from Piranha Press, although I've seen some sources say that it originally was from Titans com- Titan Comics uh, over in the UK. Um, I don't, or or maybe it was a different Titan Comics at the time. Um, that's probably more of what it was. It was probably an independent publisher. And then Piranha Press got it, so someone correct me. Maybe Mr. Phil will correct me on that. Anyway, you got to hear the blurb. So the blurb is, When the rock star formerly and once again known as Prince was just starting out in music, he had a musical comrade who was nearly a brother in many ways. They were just two kids jamming in an endless quest to unlock the secret power of music. But whereas Prince discovered the power to move an audience's heart, his friend known as Gemini, discovered how to push an audience beyond the edge of reason. Now Gemini has stolen Prince's band and threatens to engulf the city in chaos. Can Prince stop Gemini's destructive rampage before it is too late? And yes, if you're making any sort of connections in your brain about Batman and Batman and Joker, uh, that's even something that comes up in the book itself. Uh, I think uh, something like, Uh, Yin and Yang, and every Batman has its Joker. Um, So yeah, 25 years ago, Prince comic. Uh, Yeah, rest in peace, Prince. Just a few more things here for our 25th anniversary. Uh, We have Aquaman number one, which would be the series that that would only last about 13 issues. 
Um, and they all had some pretty cool Kevin Maguire covers. This was Aquaman's fourth volume. It was in celebration of his 50th anniversary around that time. And last episode in Timeline Tuesday, I talked about Aquaman uh, celebrating his 75th. Now, the writer was Sean McLaughlin, who was a total newcomer. And most of the issues had art by Ken Hooper, who was not as much as a newcomer, but still relatively unknown. And the editor was Kevin Dooley. Um, This Aquaman series was strange because at the time... They were developing the they were developing Aquaman post Peter David's Atlantis Chronicles, seven issues uh, that DC put out called the Atlantis Chronicles, that was kind of like the Game of Thrones of Atlantis at, at the time. And they were building up the origin of, of Aquaman and they were creating all this backstory for Atlantis, and it was awesome, and it was great. And we got one or two miniseries that spawned out of it. But then we got this series that I I don't think related all that much to what was going on. And then of course, um, this series would end. Apparently there was some misunderstanding between Kevin Dooley and Peter David. Peter David would finally get his, uh, Aquaman volume and the rest is history. So Aquaman, one of 13. Um, if you've never read this series, you know, I, I don't even know if you'll be able to find it all that much, maybe online somewhere. Um, but it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a little footnote of an Aquaman series. I'd have to go back and read it again to see if it even holds up in any way outside of the Kevin Maguire covers that I, I think that's really why I collected it more than anything else. Okay, lastly, we have Bill and Ted's excellent comic book, One of Twelve. Issue One of Twelve came out by Evan Dorkin uh, that apparently was all the rage. Uh, Infinity Gauntlet was ending with issue number six, and so was Marvel Fanfare. Marvel Fanfare had come to an end in October of 1991 with issue 60. Now, two other comics from Marvel that I want to point out, uh, more for their covers, uh, and this would be Quasar 29 by Greg Capullo and the cover of She-Hulk 34 by John Byrne, because they were both spoofing the Demi Moore cover from Vanity Fair that was released, oh, you know, a couple months prior to this. And it was a controversial cover at the time where she was seven months pregnant and she was holding her belly with one hand and she had a hand bra. She was using her hand and arm as a bra, her other hand and arm as a bra. And it was a photo by Annie Leibovitz for, as I said, the Vanity Fair cover. And everybody was shocked. Oh my God, this cover, oh, motherhood, oh, so scary. Uh, so Marvel jumped on it right away, and the Quasar cover, he is pregnant? I don't even know what the story, that is, what that story is about. Um, he's in costume, but he has a pregnant belly. For the She-Hulk cover, she is in a bathing suit, and she's just holding a um, green beach ball in front of her, so it makes it look like she's pregnant. So <laughs> just, you know, just some random things I came across from uh, in my research, so I thought, why not talk about it?
Okay, it's time to go back 50 years ago to 1966, October of 1966. We have Thor issue 135, and this is more about the backup tale, Tales of Asgard, by Stan and Jack. And this is the story where Thor's hammer finally gets its name of uh, Mjolnir, M-J-O-L-N-I-R. And it's in a story called The Fiery Breath of Fafnir, not Fanfear. I, last episode, for some reason, I was calling him Fanfear the Dragon. No, it's Fafnir the Dragon. I don't know what was going on. So anyway, uh, Thor's hammer, uh, its name was uh, finally revealed 50 years ago. Also in X-Men 27, in a story by Roy Thomas and artist Werner Roth, we have uh, the character of Mimic finally joining the X-Men team. He had been around for some time now, but he is... Um, I'm fairly certain he officially is the first mutant to join the team outside of the original X-Men group. And also 50 years ago, we have Detective Comics 358, which was the first appearance of the Silver Age Spellbinder. Uh, in the more modern age, there was a version of the character called Lady Spellbinder in, um, I think, Birds of Prey. And there also was a version on Batman Beyond, the cartoon, and also the Batman cartoon. But the one on Batman Beyond is probably the one maybe most people might remember him from. Not a, you know, not a great villain, uh, a kooky costume design, not anybody that uh, I think, you know, Adam from CGS will certainly know who he is, but not many other people. But I thought maybe the Batman Beyond version might resonate with some people. And really, that's it for my 50 years ago. So I'm wondering if, if I just missed something or it just was a slow month. Um, certainly there were comics, but nothing of uh, major importance, I don't think. So let's wrap up. Let's wrap up with 75 years ago. Here we are, 75 years ago, October of 1941, and you've been hearing that music playing uh, throughout the whole episode, so you know what I'm going to get to, but not yet, because first we have Detective Comics number 58 in a story called One of the Most Perfect Frame-Ups. We have the first appearance of the Penguin, whose look has barely changed since that issue. Uh, I looked up some images, and I was like, wow, he, he in, at least in the comics, more or less, was pretty much the same for about 50 to 60 years. Uh, so, And now, of course, we have Penguin on the Gotham TV show, and he's the major villain on that show, which is kind of interesting. So, yeah, 75 years of the Penguin. We also have Adventure Comics number 69, which is the first appearance of Sandy the Golden Boy in a story that featured uh, Sandman, the Golden Age Sandman. And this was the issue that also... Uh, the character of Sandman would get his yellow and purple costume with a cape. And I used to always think that that was um, a Jack Kirby thing, but this issue was not by Jack Kirby. So apparently you could, I guess what the, what the editor had said was we need to capture the flavor of Batman and Robin. So Robin as a sidekick had been around for a while. Um, and Sandy, who just randomly shows up, in this story is also a sidekick. And um, if you know your Golden Age history, 
the costume that Sandman would get, the, the yellow and purple costume, was very reminiscent of the character, the Tarantula, who was over in Star Spangled Comics. Uh, so, yeah, it was sort of a, a, a weird... Um, I don't even know, just sort of like, let's take his costume and mix in some Batman and Robin stuff, and they fight a bunch of bees in this first story. It is a weird story, so, but anyway, Sandy the Golden Boy has a sidekick. Uh, he's around, he's been around for 75 years, and you might know him from the Jeff Johns JSA series from the 2000s, um, where he sort of really came to prominence, and I don't know if he's even around, I mean... I mean, there's not. It's not like there's much of any Golden Age stuff around, other than Earth Two. So I don't know whatever became of him. So I'll have to find out. All right, and then we get to what I've been teasing all episode: All Star Comics number eight, released. So my resources say, October twenty fifth of nineteen forty one. On the cover, uh, we get. Uh, two characters that have been around for a little bit, Dr. Midnight and Starman, as they join the Justice Society of America for the first time. But if you dig in a little deeper, uh, All-Star Comics 8, she, she's not even mentioned on the cover, we get the first, first appearance and the first story of Wonder Woman. And not only Wonder Woman, but Steve Trevor, her mother, Hippolyta, although it's spelled with an E in this issue, Paradise Island is named, uh, and so is the concept of bullets and bracelets shouted out by the Amazons during the trial to see who will go to uh, America with Steve Trevor. Um, so yeah, that was kind of strange. Um, but yes, the first appearance of Wonder Woman. Now, uh, uh, two points. Uh, first point, I'm actually going to talk a little bit deeper about this first appearance in another episode because she is celebrating her 75th anniversary. She's got a movie coming out. She's finally on the big screen. Um, she, uh, they're, they're having a, a Wonder Woman day next week, which I'm certain I'll do an episode for that as well, uh, which is amazing. And she is arguably the most popular or at least the most, the most well-known female superhero, but she's not the first female superhero. Um, and again, you could sort of argue that maybe she's the first archetypal superhero, um, but she's not the first female superhero. You know, when it comes to the men, Superman being the first superhero is, is kind of, uh, you know, there's concepts that he has that aren't necessarily popular before him. But with Wonder Woman... We've already had, you know, if you want to go back to Pulp, we've had Sheena in 1937. But most historians, most places that I see, they list uh, a character known, known as Phantoma, uh, spelled F-A-N-T-O-M-A-H, created by Fletcher Hanks for Jungle Comics number 2 from 1940 as the first, quote-unquote, super-powered female. Now, even in 1941, we've already had Miss Fury, or she's also known as Black Fury. Um, she's designed pretty much like the way Frank Miller drew, uh, or David Mazzucchelli designed Catwoman for um, Batman Year One. So she's in like a cat suit, but she's called Miss Fury or Black Fury. She doesn't have any powers, um, but her newspaper strip uh, started in April, April 6th of 1941, 
Um, you know, she had some some skills, some combat skills. She had a compact, a makeup compact that she would blow into the faces of criminals. <laughs> kind of strange. Um, but we've also had Phantom Lady by this point, Sandra Knight. She was in Police Comics number one, which was from May of 1941. Uh, by the way, these are not cover dates again. These are actual release dates. So All-Star Comics uh, number eight is in October, and we've already had these other characters. Now, within the DC Universe itself, we've already had Hawkwoman more or less. So this is where things get a little tricky if we want to say that Wonder Woman is the first superhero within the DC continuity. Now, Hawkwoman had her first appearance not as a costumed character, but as her identity of Shiera, and that was Flash Comics 13 from November 1940, almost a year prior to Wonder Woman. Uh, she would then next appear in All-Star Comics number 5, and this is from April of 1941. Uh, now, in this story, she is given a costume by Hawkman uh, for the first time, but it's because he wants villains to think that he is in two different places. So she is in costume. Shiera is finally in a Hawk costume, but she's posing as Hawkman. And so that's why you can sort of get away with that little bit of discrepancy. But it clearly is the, the costume that she would wear later on. All right, then in her, in her third appearance, uh, which also came, in, came out in October, but apparently it came out in October, uh, October 14th, so, you know, a week or two before Wonder Woman's appearance, we have Flash Comics Volume 1, number 24. And again, she is in her Hawk her hawk costume and the reason she's in her costume is because they're going to a masquerade ball and she has nothing to wear so of course carter hall in his hawkman garb says well i have a costume for you so she tries it on and she says i must say this certainly is different if carter is the hawkman i'm the hawk woman a tricky idea and then he says, now you can fly with me to the ball. And she says, you mean these wings really work? I'm all excited. This will be fun. Now, the discrepancy that I sort of think about, though, is that we've already seen her in costume. She's actually flown in that costume in that previous uh, All-Star Comics number five issue where she was posing as Hawkman. And, you know, this story sort of says, oh, but I don't really, it's kind of like this was the first time, but it's not. But she calls herself Hawkwoman. And as I said, this came out a couple of weeks before All-Star Comics 8, if my research is right. Now, within All-Star Comics 8 itself, uh, the Hawkman story uh, comes before the Wonder Woman story. So she is in costume again, although they're doing the whole thing again where she's posing as Hawkman to try to confuse um, you know, criminals. So it's... It's really kind of strange, the whole who, who is DC's first female superhero, you know, it's between, between Hawkwoman and Wonder Woman anyway. Um, I might be missing somebody completely that predates both of them, but I don't, I don't remember. Um, and you know what? I'm not saying any of this to take away from Wonder Woman's place. Um, this is just one of those, th those things that I talked about earlier in the episode where when you finally read this stuff yourself – and you put it all in some kind of con context, you go, oh, okay, 
you know, I mean, I've certainly known for a while that Wonder Woman is not the first female superhero. Um, she's just arguably the most prominent. Um, but, you know, I, I just think people out there, there, there might be somebody out there um, who, you know, if you go and read this stuff yourself, maybe you'll come away with a different perspective. Uh, so I'm sure there are historians out there that know much more about all this than me. I just found it very interesting. Um, this whole thing about Shiera and her and her as Hawkwoman and how she predates Wonder Woman, um, you know, and, and in All-Star Comics 8, it's just an introduction of Wonder Woman as a character. It's her origin story. And that origin story would then get tweaked, um, I think, in Wonder Woman number one. You know, we would get All-Star Comics number eight and then we would get Sensational Comics number one and a couple issues of that before she would get her own series. So, uh, you know. A lot of these beginning golden age stories, they're like wet cement. They don't really, they don't really solidify until a couple years after. So, so it's all just a bit tricky. Anyway, yes, 75 years ago, October 1941, All Star Comics number eight, first appearance of Diana, Prince Di- Princess Diana, Wonder Woman, and the rest would definitely be history. As I said, I'm going to go a little bit more in depth on that first appearance, and there's a part of me that really wants to read every Wonder Woman appearance, and I certainly want to reread the Paris stuff, and, you know, her series right now is apparently very good, and she's been in in the news with the movie and the Wonder Woman Day, and, you know, the interview with Greg Rucka talking about her sexuality, and, um, uh, you know, all this stuff, you know, I sort of want to expand on in a future episode, so... Uh, happy birthday. Happy 75th anniversary, Wonder Woman. This is the month to celebrate if she is your favorite character. Uh, I just think, um, you know, she's certainly one of my favorite characters as I look back and I look at my collection. I actually just did a reorganizing of my collection and, you know, I always get to the W and I flip through those Bronze Age Wonder Woman comics that I have uh, from the, a few from the late 60s, uh, a bunch from the 70s and, you know, quite a bunch from the 80s leading up to the cancellation during the crisis and then all the Perez run. Um, I wasn't there for the William Messner Loeb's stuff. I did jump on again with um, the Mike Diodato artwork, the whole contest thing. Uh, then there was the John Byrne run, which I eventually sold. And then there was that space between Byrne and Phil Jimenez with Eric Luke and a couple other creators. I read a little bit of that here and there. Jumped on with Phil Jimenez. Um, Who came on after Phil Jimenez? Was that Rucka then? Probably. And then eventually that series would end again with another crisis, Infinite Crisis. And then you had Gail... No. Uh, Who who wrote... um, Who wrote Wonder Woman when she came back after Infinite Crisis? Ah! was the artwork by Tara Dotson. I I can't think of the writer. It's totally escaping me. But uh, it was artwork by Tara Dotson and Rachel Dotson and who was the Alan Heinberg, I think his name was. Was he the guy that wrote Young Young Avengers? I'm I'm forgetting. Anyway, and then Jody Peacock joined the book for very little. They had the Amazons attack. Gail Simone took over. Um, then there were some other writers, I think, J. Michael Straczynski, then her book ended again, and then we had, uh, I guess that's when we had the New 52, New 52 Wonder Woman, and eventually the new Wonder Woman now, also by Greg Rucka. So, lots of Wonder Woman to read, and, um, you know, it's just so awesome 
to see that she's getting her due finally. Um, and, uh, you know, just thought it was awesome that, uh, I was able to talk about her for a little bit here in this episode. So, all right. I think that's it. That's it for this timeline Tuesday for October. I hope you enjoyed that episode and it spurred some memories. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you remember. Uh, you can contact me at peter at or send a, uh, you can uh, post some comments up on the website. You can always send me an iTunes review, which would be much appreciated. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 362 for Tuesday, October 11th, 2016. See ya. Change the